Well, I would ask you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11. If this is your first Sunday here, we are studying the book of Acts, and uh, we are going through it thought by thought, and we have left off here at Acts chapter 11. We are right in the middle of a story of Peter, who has uh, made his way to uh, the house of a man by the name of Cornelius. The Lord had brought him there. Cornelius was a Gentile. And this is the first moment when, when the, uh, the believers, the, the first Christians, were making their way into Gentile evangelism. Gentile meaning non-Jewish. So they're making their way out to the non-Jewish world. And Cornelius, who was a Roman soldier, uh, had received the gospel. And now Peter is on his way back to report back what happened. We spent a few weeks looking at this account. Luke really stops and drills down on this account because it's a very important story in the life of the church. It's a, one that you're supposed to learn some very important lessons by. And so it's a very repetitive story. The same story keep, kind of keeps getting told over and over and over again, three times in fact, just to make sure that we get the point. And I think one of the things that we have to learn from this account, and especially the repetitive nature of it, is uh, we're supposed to learn something, I believe, about us as Christians. And specifically, what I think we have to learn is how slow we are as Christians sometimes to keep up with God. In many ways, God is moving in ways that make us and pr- make us feel uncomfortable, press us into situations where we feel very uncomfortable. Usually when that happens, the we have a tendency to slow down. We have a tendency to react in like a negative manner or a frustrated manner or whatever because we're just kind of frustrated. We can be scared or frustrated or scared of what God is doing. And anytime God moves, it seems like the church is a little slow to be on the uptick. It's true here in Acts. It's true in our day. I don't know if you know this, but uh, when radio was coming into play, you know, back in the early 1930s, the government, federal government, said, okay, well, we need to regulate radio airwaves. So they developed the FCC, right? And the FCC's job was to regulate the airwaves. Now, whether you know this or not, when the FCC put this together, they had a rule, there was a law, that said they would grant no radio license to any radio company or anybody who wanted to start a radio station. You wouldn't get the license unless you gave free airtime to a church, the church had to, you know, one service at least had to be on a week, and you had to give it away free to a church. If the church, if you couldn't get a church to do it, you wouldn't get a radio license, a broadcast license. So people who were starting these radio stations would go out to churches and say, hey, would you like to be on the radio for free? We'll broadcast your service. So what was the response of the conservative church? The conservative church said, no way. And there's a biblical reason why. They have a biblical reason. Well, biblical, right? Quotations. Biblical reason why. I'm not, if we were in a little smaller setting, I would say, can you guess why? But I'll give you the reason why. Maybe I'll give you a second if you can think about what their biblical reason would be. Time's up. Here's the biblical reason. <laughs> Ephesians 2. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. That was the rationale. 
So they turn the airwaves over to people who we probably shouldn't have on the airwaves, right? And those who had the message, they were scared. Now, this is just a little side note, a little side history lesson. Do you know that uh, what the first church was, there was a, a church in town, actually, that did it here, uh, uh, that went on the air. And, uh, and, and you may not know it, but they met at 425 Fisk Avenue. Okay? Our church building, when it was owned by the Lutheran Church, they actually went on the air. And they were the first broadcast church service. They did a great job, by the way, so I'm not including them in, the, in those that were, probably shouldn't have been on the air, but they did. And in fact, if you remember our building, we own that building, for those of you who haven't been, don't, have been here since we sold that building. Uh, if you remember when you were looking up at the stage, there was a, the air conditioner was on your left. Right above it was a little light bulb thingamajig, a thing to screw a light bulb in. Socket, right? There you go. A light socket. It's going to be one long sermon if I can't get these things out of here. Oh, <laughs> um, maybe we just close in prayer. And that was a light bulb that they had turned on when they were live to tell the people, keep your kids quiet and, and uh, we're on the air now, you know. And then uh, they would shut it off when they were off the air. So anyways, that's just a little side note. But what's interesting is kind of the slowness of the church to embrace this thing. Now, today, if you've, you know, every preacher wants to get on the radio and have his radio ministry, it's a big deal. The church, you know, fast forward just a few years. When I was in high school, one of the popular singers was Keith Green. We sang his, our opening song. It was one of his songs today. Now, of course, when I was in high school, and those of you who remember this uh, back then, you know, Keith Green was of the devil, man. Like, he had curly hair, and he played the piano loud. And... Uh, God can't use curly hair, long curly hair. God can't use people to play the piano that horrible way. And, and I mean, it was just so, if you brought any Keith Green music to the church, it was like, get out, man. This is devil music. And then, like, in my 20s, he's in the hymn book. <laughs> and then what happens now? He's not even considered rock and roll, right? I mean, if you put it on in your car with your teenage kids, they'd be like, what is that? That's horrible, right? Not because it's not rock and roll. It's just, what kind of music is that? That's, that was cool back when I was in high school. <laughs> and my kids say, that's why you're so lame. No, I'm joking. Okay. That was cool. You need help. Okay. The church is slow on the uptick. Isn't it? I mean, the church is just slow. It was true here in Acts. And here's the reason why. Peter goes out to this Gentile house and he does some things that are very unconventional. And the people say to him, hey, what you're doing is wrong. We're not upset that those Gentiles were converted. We're not upset that Cornelius' household and other friends of his had trusted Christ. What we're upset about is the way you did it. And we think the way you did it was wrong. And we're going to confront you on it. And what Peter does is he explains why he did what he did. And he gives a theological rationale. And that theological rationale, I think, is very helpful because it provides for us balance. It provides for us balance because what we want to do is we don't want to, first of all, just write things off because they're new. We don't want to do that. We also don't want to, uh, if we're going to go somewhere, add to the gospel, add law, add, 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 and weigh people down. But on the same token, we don't want to go somewhere and take away from the gospel either, right? I mean, those are very real threats. 
right? One is disengagement, the other's adding, the other's taking away. All kinds of things you can do that are wrong with the gospel. Peter's explanation here helps us understand that balance, how to walk in that balance, how to engage by not adding, how to engage by not taking away, staying true to the message of the gospel, but at the same token, moving forward as God's advancing. All that's in this account today, and we're going to see it here. We're just kind of unfolding the story. We'll see the struggle that they have, and then we'll see Peter explain the plan of God, and then we're going to see how it all resolves itself and the theology that resolves all of this. And, and I, I want us to have this kind of balance. I think Peter, or Luke, I should say, wrote this account of Peter, and the Spirit's intention, intended aim of this passage is to help us understand engagement, to help us understand what, how do we engage with the right balance, how we don't hold back or how we don't add or how we don't subtract, but we stay true to the mission. So let's look at it here. Let's look at the struggle here. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Okay, so here's what you have. You've got uh, the Judea region, the southern region of Israel. There's believers there in that southern region. Peter is a little bit further north. He's preached the gospel up north. These Gentiles got saved. Before Peter even returns, word gets back. Gentiles have repented and that they are in Christ. Word is back. Now, you would think that people would be excited about this moment, and there was rejoicing that happened, but there's also some confusion about the process. But Peter, if you remember, when he went out there, he didn't just go out there and hang out with these Gentiles just to hang out with them. He went out and he preached a very strict and direct message. He said, Jesus is the judge of humanity but he's also the Savior. So you're going to face him as your judge. But the good news is that you can also repent. You can also bow before him as your Savior, and your your judge can be your defense attorney on the day of judgment. There's the good news. Jesus is the judge, but he's also the Savior. So he, he was faithful. He preached that message. They had received that message. Spirit of God comes upon them. And news, of course, travels fast as these Gentiles get brought in. Now notice what happens in verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, so he makes his way up the hill, up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now the circumcision party will turn up uh, a lot. This is We're kind of learning about them. Luke kind of foreshadows the people who are going to turn up later in the book, and here these guys show up. What these guys are is, they, they, became, they had a term later that maybe you're more familiar with, a Judaizer. Maybe you've heard that term. They were originally called the Circumcision Party. And uh, quite a name, right? You would think you'd have a better name than that one. But anyways, that's what they called themselves. That's what people called them. And basically what they taught was this, that yes, you can trust in Jesus, but you cannot abandon those ceremonial laws. You can't do that. The men must be circumcised, the dietary restrictions must be kept, all of the the social restrictions have to be put in place, which means that if you're going to go to some Gentiles, the very first thing they have to do is before they can be in your presence, the men have to get circumcised, they got to follow the right dietary laws, you can't eat with them until they have kind of adhered to the system. And if they don't adhere to the system, you can't be with them because they're unholy, and once you walk in a room with those guys, you're unholy. 
There's the problem, right? There's the situation. Once you walk in, you're unholy. And these, this group that believes this, they, they say they believe in Jesus, but they're not willing to abandon the ceremonial laws. They're sitting there. They're envisioning Peter sitting around, you know, I think eating pork and shellfish, drinking goat's milk, having a good time, laughing with these guys. And they're like, oh, you can't do this. That's not holy. You, you can't defile God while trying to declare his glory. That's, that's, I think, what they're trying to say to him. You can't defile God and try to declare his glory. You can't do that. And that's how they perceive this, that what Peter was doing. Now, let's not be hard on these guys, because uh, obviously there is, if you just read through Leviticus 11 all the way, you know, 11 on, chapter 11 on, there's lots of laws. There's lots of things God said. And the question is, why did he say those things? I mean, did he, is, is God just backing away from these things? Well, there's a reality that those things were in place for a reason. And as this unfolds, we'll get into it. But, but the simple reason is this. God did set boundaries. He set boundaries around the Jews until the time of Christ comes. And they were boundaries. The end goal of God was not dietary laws. The end goal of God is that people would have the life of Jesus in them. And the dietary laws were only designed to get you to that point. It's kind of like bedtime with your children. I'm not calling up my daughter who's 20 years old and, you know, in college saying, it's bedtime now. Did you brush your teeth? Okay. You need to go to bed. Yes, daddy. Right. You can't, I'm not doing that. She's 20. But, she, but I did do that when she was four. There's a point in time for those boundaries, and then there's a point in time when those boundaries shift and change. And hopefully, through all the boundaries we set for our children, that they emerge out of this not needing boundaries because we've taught them to be responsible with their life. And hopefully now they can be self-directed instead of externally directed. So the Israel had these boundaries around them. But these boundaries are going to be fulfilled. Something is going to change. God's not going to do away with them. He's going to fulfill them. He's going to change people. The law changed people from the outside. The new covenant was going to change people from the inside. And once you're changed from the inside, everything changes. This is the lesson that Peter had to learn. Because Peter himself was struggling with the very same thing these, this circumcision party was struggling with. And so this leads us now to the plan. Peter gives the plan. Here's what Peter does. He has to explain to these people that he was on the same page with them. But God taught him something. God gave him his plan. Notice what Peter says in verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. 
And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel's he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So Peter's saying, Hey, man, I was on the same page as you. And then what happened? I was praying, got in this trance, and the sheet came down and said, Eat these animals. And I said, No way. And God said, Yes. And I said, No. And he said, Yes. And I said, No. And he said, Yes. Peter's standing firm, right? You know? And God told him the second time, you are not allowed to declare those animals unclean because I have made them clean. That is the theology of the moment right there. There it is. That's the plan of God. God's entire plan was not to keep shellfish or pork off limits for the rest of our lives. It was to say this, this is a boundary, You're going to be distinct. You're going to have to realize that you're not right with me, that there are unclean things in the world and there are clean things in the world. And I want you to pursue the clean things. And Israel tried and tried and tried, and they couldn't pursue those clean things. The longest they made it was 80 years, if you study the Old Testament. They couldn't go longer than 80 years without having some kind of judgment come upon them. All the way through, and then God tells Jeremiah, I want you to tell Israel, a new covenant is coming. One will I will write my law on people's hearts. I'll give them my very spirit, and they'll be made alive. And I'm going to take that which is not clean and make it clean. I'm going to take that which belonged to those pagan Gentiles, and I'm going to redeem it. It isn't that God is blowing off his own law. God is fulfilling his own law. God is fulfilling it. Peter realized God is the one who makes things clean. And so he brings six guys with him. That's something we learn as Peter recounts the story. He's got six men he comes with him. Even though, you know, so these Gentiles show up and and the Spirit tells them, do not discriminate because Peter's first instinct would have been to say, I am not walking down the road with you guys. You're Gentiles. I'm not walking down the road. And the Spirit says, no, don't think that way anymore. Go with them. Peter grabs six Jews. All right, let's go. Let's check this thing out. So he's got these witnesses that are here, that are witnessing what's happening. And here's this moment. God is showing his plan to Peter. And the plan of God is to redeem. The plan of God is to transform. The plan of God is to change. The plan of God is to absolutely do a radical transformation. And so suddenly now, a whole new mindset is entering into Peter. A mindset not of saying, how do I maintain these distinctions and these boundaries? Instead now, Peter's coming and realizing, how do I bring the message of transformation so these Gentiles don't have to just hear that you can't eat shellfish. They actually can have the Spirit of God take over their life and something more profound than dietary laws will happen to them. They'll be walking in the righteousness of Christ. They just won't be externally conformed to a set of rules. They'll be internally transformed and to begin to think and act like God himself. That's what's going on. Peter's like, okay, this is about God making things clean. 
The cross has come. That's the reality of the cross. The cross has made it possible for these Gentiles to repent. Okay, so there's the plan. So we've got to struggle because Peter seems to be working outside the, the norm, but the plan is God is about transformation. So now let's see how this thing resolves itself. Okay, because Peter's, we kind of stopped the story midstream here. But Peter, uh, as he's recounting this event, he's going to say something, and then the people are going to respond. And as Peter says what he says, and the people respond, there are going to be three truths we're going to learn. In, in, as Peter finishes the story and the people respond. And these three truths, I believe, are the balance of how to actually carry out the kingdom of God and the work of the kingdom and advancing the kingdom without disengaging, without adding to it law, or subtracting the gospel and weakening and softening the gospel. We see all of that in these responses. So let's look at it here. The first truth we're going to see is this, that God treats all people equally. And this is the first truth that helps us, that Luke, I believe, wants us to see. Verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. That's the key right there, that little last phrase. He fell on, fell on them just like us when he came in Jerusalem. Meaning this, they got the exact same spirit the exact same way. There was no distinction. Okay, this is a profound point. It's a profound point. You know, it's a profound point because I, I think about this. As, as we've been researching uh, the work that, that uh, Karis's and the Clock and Gazer have been doing up in Canada, one of the things that we found among some of the early missionaries that went up into that region was that when they would work with people from an Ojibwe tribe or a, 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 a Cree tribe or any of the... the uh, the First Nations people that are up there, they would go up there and many of the missionaries would say, listen, we're not going to learn sitting around a fire. We learn in rows. So we're going to put you in rows. And, and we're not going to be wearing the clothes you wear. Men wear ties when they study the Bible. So you've got to wear a tie. And women have to wear dresses when they study the Bible. So you're going to have to wear a dress. And they literally were trying to conform them to a Western way. And there's a term that came out of this, a term that came out of the Aboriginal people. They call it white man's gospel. The gospel belongs to the white men because in order to be a gospel person, you have to conform to the white culture. But you see, Peter's saying, do you understand? They don't have to conform to Judaism. The Gentiles don't have to become Jews to get the Spirit of God. God shows no distinction anymore. He's not showing distinction. The very gospel comes right down to you. They cried out in repentance, and the Spirit was poured out upon them. No distinction. No distinction. Peter then says this in verse 16. And I remember the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter is actually telling us what he was thinking as the Spirit's descending upon these people. What's going through his brain are the words of Jesus when Jesus said, 
I'm going to start throwing out my spirit to people. And Peter's like, this is exactly what's happening here. Jesus said he was going to do it, and it's happening. This is what the cross has accomplished. That's the implication. Jesus' work made it possible so that they could cry out and get access to the spirit. There is no distinction. Now, the hard part for us, of course, is human beings, we like to make distinctions. We all have them. I think if you dug down deeply, you would find your distinctions, areas where you might say, that person should change. I I struggle with that practice. I have a hard time with that. And sometimes it's easy to start thinking people need to kind of clean up or God could never use that or God can't work there or this could never be done that way. I mean, it's amazing. You know, I'm not saying that I would have been any less reactive to the radio thing a hundred years ago when that started coming onto the scene. I don't know how I would have responded. I know that I have my distinctions because I'm a sinful human being. But here's the point. God isn't having a distinction. The cross made it possible for these guys to cry out. So then notice what Peter says in verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Right? You get his point. Right? God's pouring out his spirit. Peter's not going to go, oh, hold on a minute, God, you're wrong here. They're eating shellfish right now. You can't work where people are eating shellfish. You made that clear. First, we must remove the shellfish and the goat's milk and the pork and everything else. And then, let's get the men lined up, get them circumcised, and then you can pour your spirit out. You're saying, I can't do that. That's crazy. Now, notice verse 18. And the people respond. This is a wonderful moment. And in this response, there's two truths that we'll see. But let's just look at 18. He says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So when they heard these things, basically, they, their mouths were shut. The criticisms were stopped. The internal, like, you did the wrong thing. How could you eat with those guys? That's so bad. You defiled God. Blah, 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 right? Whatever they were coming at him with, he backed off. they backed off. They were quiet. And they began to worship God. God, you did this. This is incredible that you can work directly with these people. So worship is going on. And then two statements are made. And in, these, in, the, in this statement here that's here, we get two truths, okay? Here's the first truth, or the, two more truths, right? So truth number two in this passage is that God grants repentance. Don't add to the gospel. What do I mean? Well, notice what they say. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. Now, this might seem like a, 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 a simple point, but yet it's one that we've, I, we should probably think about because it's easy to, uh, to, first of all, give up on people, right? It's easy to think that people are beyond repentance. It's easy to write the last chapter. I talk to them, it's over. You know. But God's the one who's going to open people's eyes. But the second reality is that we don't want to add to the gospel by saying, okay, here's your problem. Your problem isn't just that you do this. The problem is you're listening to Keith Green. And Keith Green's on the radio, and God doesn't use the radio, and God doesn't use Keith Green. You can't do this. You you need to abandon your music. You need to abandon this. You need to abandon that. And then you can see how bad it is because all these poor decisions you're making, and you're doing this, and you're doing this, and you're doing this. So if you would just repent, and you lay all that stuff out there, and people are starting to think, okay, i got to change this. i got to change that. i got to do this. i got to do that. i got to do that. He's saying, stop. God opens people's eyes. He grants repentance. That's the good news. That's why, by the way, 
the missionary venture is guaranteed success. It's guaranteed. We can send people anywhere to the worst places in the world and say, it doesn't really matter. I don't care how hard-hearted you are. You're not the one in charge. God is. He grants repentance. It's a guaranteed mission. There will be success. But we don't want to add to it. I don't want to add. I don't want to layer. I don't want to put all that stuff that, those, that, those, that that circumcision party wanted to put on Peter. If you're going to go there, you better tell them all this before you tell them that. They said, whoa, God did this. But then we get the second truth, or the, or the third truth, actually. The second truth they point out in their point, but our third truth here is that repentance is what leads to life. So we don't want to subtract from the gospel either. Repentance is what leads to life, because notice what they say. Then God has granted them repentance that leads to life. So what does that mean, repentance leading to life? The word repentance is used over 50 times in the New Testament. Some theologians call it the action of faith. True faith is seen by repentance. That's what it's seen by. What does that mean? What does repentance mean? Well, here's the point. Repentance comes when the gospel is presented to you. So I want you to think about Peter's gospel. Peter's gospel is simply this. Peter says, Jesus is judge and he's savior. You're going to be held accountable to his standard. Oh my. Well, he's like infinitely perfect. He forgives everybody. He walks in humility all the time. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When people beat him up, he didn't beat them up back. He didn't fight back. He showed humility. He showed endurance. Okay, uh, yeah, that's your judge. Will you be able to stand under his presence? No. Well, I got good news for you. He's also the Savior. One of the things that he did is he took your sin upon himself. So now you can turn to him. See, that's what repentance is. That's the idea. It's a message that leads to an action. So now, how how do we understand this? Well, let let me kind of unpack repentance a little bit deeper here. It's kind of two points that you can understand repentance by. The first point is this, that repentance involves recognizing this offense you've made to God. It's recognizing this. You've made an offense towards God. Because you see, all sin, ultimately, at the end of the day, is rebellion against God. It is sin against other people, but if you really want to get down to the heart of making it right, repentance is recognizing that I haven't walked under the authority of God. You realize this, every sin that we commit is because we want to be the Lord of our own lives, right? If you get angry with somebody, why are you getting angry with them? Because they're not doing what you want them to do. If you steal something, why do you steal something? Because you want something that God hasn't given to you and you feel you deserve it. If you're jealous of somebody, why? Because you feel like you need that and it's not fair that they have it. Any sin, you could pick any sin and it's because you've made yourself and your desires your standard. You are tuning yourself to yourself. You're your own tuning fork. That's what all sin is. So repentance begins by recognizing this. David in Psalm 51 verse 4, he's repenting of his sin of adultery and murder. And he says this in Psalm 51 verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned 
And you might say, well, didn't he kind of sin against Bathsheba by kind of raping her? I think he raped her. And then killing her husband? Yeah. But then why did he say against you and you only have I sinned? Well, you'll see why in a second here. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What's he saying? He's saying, you know what? You, the end of the day, you called me to be a shepherd to Israel. And I used my role as the shepherd of Israel to serve my pleasure and not your pleasure. You gave me the role as the commander-in-chief of the army to protect these people. And I used my role as commander-in-chief of the army to murder somebody. If I had followed you and said my role is to show care and tender love for Bathsheba and help her to find her joy and her comfort in you, my role as commander-in-chief to protect this nation, I would have never done this. And because I lived for my own flesh, I became an adulterer and a murderer. And so notice how he says in 51.4, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You can do whatever you want to be, and you're justified. I did these things because I was serving myself. Repentance begins there. It's recognizing this is the offense before you. I am not submitting to you as Lord. Repentance is the understanding, ultimately, that you're not under the lordship of Christ. But then you move to kind of the second thing we learn about repentance. It's a very powerful point. That repentance, then, is turning away from sin, turning to Jesus as Lord, turning to his gracious provisions he's made for your forgiveness. That's what it is. It's, it's turning away from the sin. It's turning to Jesus as Lord. It's, it's turning to his gracious provision of forgiveness. So David later in that psalm says, verses 10 through 13, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Right? He's turning to God's provision. And renew a right spirit in me, in me. Cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I think that's a kingly statement about his role as king. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. He's saying this, God, restore me. Restore my spirit so that I would want to serve you, that I would want to uphold my role. And then instead of being a murderer and adulterer, let me use my role to call people back to you. God, I want to serve you again. That's what I want to do. I want to serve you again. See, that's repentance. And you only get to repentance when somebody presents to you the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's also Savior. And as Lord, he will judge. But the good news is he's made a way for you to be right through his death and resurrection on the cross. He forgave your sins. So, They recognized that third truth. Repentance was granted to these people. And when a person repents, what happens? They are made brand new. More goes on in their heart and life than what could ever be done if they just didn't eat shellfish. Right? They're different people now. They're different people. That's God's plan and path. So, let's wrap this up. What's the balance here then? Okay, Peter has gone out. Something new has come. Church is struggling with this. Well, there's a reality here. There's some very important realities. The first thing is this, and I think this is the balance we learn in this text. Number one, God treats all people the same. Everyone has direct access to him. This is the reason why we don't want to disengage when a gospel moment is present. 
I don't want to step and look at a gospel woman and go, I can't go there because you see, you're this way. And God would never use that. Or you're just so defiled, can't do that. And yet here's the reality. God treats all all people the same. The same spirit that's upon you can come upon anyone. Don't disengage. Second thing, though, God is the one who grants repentance, though. And so I don't want to add, I don't want to manipulate, I don't want to go in there and make this a conversation just about external morality. I want to go in there prayed up. God, would you open their eyes that they might repent? Would you open their eyes? God, open our eyes to see this, to see you. I don't want to add requirements. But the third thing we have to remember is that the key to life is repentance. Key to spiritual life. Repentance is the key to it. And so I don't want to then take away from the gospel and just say, well, I'm just going to go hang out with these guys. And then just, we're just hanging there. Because no one will repent. At that point, I want to bring a message so that when God opens their eyes, they can respond to that message. Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead, but the good news is that he's the Savior. And if you come to him, He'll defend you on the day of judgment with his own blood. He will have paid the penalty. So how does this help us practically, right? This news, that gospel's for the whole world. We can take it, we want to take it out in prayer, and we want to tell people Jesus is judge and Savior. How does this help us? Well, I was just thinking, let me just give you a couple things here as I wrap up. I kind of came up with kind of a, kind of a, a litmus test of involvement, so, so here's how, I, how I'm going to process things. As they come my way, and I have an opportunity to engage something, engage some kind of mission for the kingdom, how am I going to practically process through this? Well, here's the first thing. The first thing I'm going to do is I don't want to discount something just because it's different. If something new comes my way, I don't want to just have that first response like, no, we can't do that. It'll cost us something. We can't do that, right? I don't want to just say no because it's new or different. But the second thing is that I, don't, I, I, don't wanna, I would not be put off by anything that I find offensive. I don't want to do that. Instead, I want to pray that God would grant repentance. I want to enter into a situation and pray, God, this thing is bad. Maybe there's some horrible thing going on in the community, and I want to go in and engage it. But I don't want to be put off by it. Instead, what I want to do is say, God, would you, would you grant repentance out of that group right there? Would you open the eyes of some in that place that they might see you? But then the third thing I want to ask myself is this. Is this a context that it would allow me to present Jesus as both judge and Lord? Or I could say this way, judge and Savior. Is this a, a, a way that I could do that? What do I mean, what do I mean by this? Like, not that this would happen, but if some like, radio talk show called up and said, Steve, would you like to be on representing Christianity? Tell me a little bit about the format. Well, we got three people on. They just shout at each other for two and a half minutes. You want to go? No. I have no desire. Why? Because I want a platform. You got to give me two minutes of uninterrupted talk so that I can tell people that Jesus is judge and savior. If I don't have that platform, I'm not doing it. I would challenge the young people this way. You might say, great, I'm going to go to this party, and I'm going to show people that Christians can be cool. Well, first of all, that's not our mission, okay? 70s Christian rock will show you that it's not cool people, right? (laughs) Right? That's not our mission. Our mission isn't to show people that Christians are cool. Our mission is to tell people that Jesus is judge and Savior. Now, 
If you don't have the courage to do that, if you would get to that party and you actually think you would shrink back, then I would say, you know what? You might be going and not shining the light of the gospel. And so so the young people and even to the adults in the room, I would say this. I want to go to a place where I know that I have the space, but I also have the courage to be able to stand there and tell people the news that Jesus is both judge and savior. Now, I think with that, you have balance, right? Do you see the balance? I'm not disengaging because it's offensive. God can work. I'm not disengaging because the people are pagan. God grants repentance. But when I am engaging, I'm not engaging to show the world that Jesus is cool. I'm engaging to tell him something infinitely deeper. Jesus is the judge, and you will stand before him one day. But the good news is you don't have to be afraid because he's the Savior. And pray God would open up people's eyes. And to those that he doesn't open up their eyes, they will probably beat you up. And that's the gospel. And that's the mission of the gospel. Would you bow your head with me? And let's pray. God, I thank you for the courage that you instilled within Peter. What a big moment for him to get off the roof of that house and to walk down the road with three Gentiles. Then to enter the home feeling as if he's violating everything that he learned in the Bible. Going through that whole process, but yet having the courage to declare that you are judge and you are Savior. Lord, may we have that balance in our, in our own lives, in, the, in our own church. May we not reject things because they're new. May we not add to things because you're going to call us to deal with people who are very immoral. But Lord, more than anything else, may we not subtract. May we not take away the message of Jesus. May we be Christ-centered in both our love and in our words that we would show the love that God can open up people's eyes and distribute his spirit to everyone. There is no distinction. There's no, no discrimination we use. But may we be bold and clear about our message. For some of us in this room, that will mean persecution to those whose hearts are hard. But for all of us, Lord, I pray that it would yield fruit as you're granting repentance in people's lives. Thank you for sending us on a winning mission. May we have the balance to walk in this way. Lord, write these words on our heart that we might be confirmed in our purpose for being here. In Christ's name, amen.